MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. This is episode 74. You're listening to this on Wednesday, June 15th. And joining me, as always, well, usually. <laughs> as usual. <laughs> is Andrew Torres back from the COVID. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you doing, Allison? Oh, you know, I'm, uh, hoo hoo hoo. The news, um, has doubled in the last week and a half or so. So it's been extremely busy over here on Team Beans, but, you know, it's, it's, it's good news mostly and very important stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I am, on the mend, still, you know, kind of wiped out from COVID, but uh, I, I, I greatly appreciate the uh, the rest from last week. That was that was rough getting through, you know, a sentence at a time. <laughs> so oh, I bet. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm fully vaxxed and you know doubly boosted, and you know it just um, uh, it it happened anyway. So there you go. Yep, it's still a thing, and yeah. uh, we're very glad we had everyone send out healing vibes. I know a lot of our patrons did, and I think we have some new patrons this week to give a shout-out to, yeah? We do. We get three new patrons. They are Victoria Pentecost, thank you, Christopher Chastine, and I became a patron of Aisle 45 today so I could scold Andrew into resting. Well, <laughs> well thank you. Uh, immediately after the conclusion of this recording, I promise you, uh, I will go, I will do one more other thing and then I'll go rest. Okay. So mm. excellent. Good. <laughs> Thank you. you need Thank it. you so much. So we're going to dive in today and we're going to talk about these hearings, Woo. but there's something else <laughs> I wanted to talk about first. And I touched on this on Monday's daily beans, but saved getting into the weeds until today. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the DC bar has filed ethics charges against Rudy Giuliani. Yay. And, <laughs> and since the story came out, we learned a lot about Rudy's role in the big lie during Monday's 1-6 committee hearing, including that an intoxicated Rudy spoke to a team of Trump and White House lawyers advising that Trump declare victory the night of the election before all the votes were counted. So, but first, let's dive into this ethics charge. Okay, okay. I, it, it's hard for me to pass up a lead like <laughs> apparently intoxicated Rudy Giuliani, but I'm sure we're going to get there. Okay, so... Rudy had already been suspended from practicing law by the New York bar, right? Uh, that was soon followed by a reciprocal suspension in D.C. 
pending the outcome of a sanctions investigation. And in the new filing from the D.C. bar, Giuliani is also accused of violating Pennsylvania's rules of professional conduct. That that is the trifecta, New York, D.C., Pennsylvania, uh, because he, quote, brought a proceeding and asserted issues therein without a non-frivolous basis in law and fact for doing so, and, quote, engaged in conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice, which is uh, putting it mildly. Yeah. So explain the process here, because... There's so many sanctions things going on with this guy and and a lot of the folks on Trump's uh, decided legal team. After we found out today, they split. There was a split, kind of like how there was a split on Ukraine policy back yeah. in the day. Um, as CNN says, this is the first step in a process for Rudy to have his license permanently revoked. Uh, it's been a while since the investigations into his conduct began. And this seems like a, a multi-step process. It's not just like... And these aren't the Michigan referrals. It's not just like we refer you to the bar and the bar goes, OK, we've made a decision. There's a lot of steps here. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, so let's let's break that down a little bit. In New York, uh, just like uh, what's happening here in D.C., the suspension from the practice of law is preemptive. Think about this as like being held without bail. Right. The idea is. We have not yet made a final determination on the merits, but we think you are potentially so dangerous that while we are investigating your conduct, we are going to suspend your license to practice law. I said at the time that it happened in New York that I have never seen this happen in my legal career, and now I've seen it happen twice to the same guy. Yeah, and we um, talked about it too, right? Because we basically broke it down like, all right, they got the referral, they sat down, opened up all the stuff, and, and within five minutes went, holy shit. Yeah, uh, we you can't, can't allow this guy in a courtroom. Yeah, we got to suspend him now pending the outcome and then finish investigating. That's how bad it is. Right. And so- you are entitled to a quasi-judicial proceeding, right? It is, it's not quite a trial, uh, but you are entitled to a hearing. You can be represented by counsel uh, before the Bar Disciplinary Committee. And it's called different things in different states, but it, it's basically the same thing. And then you get an appeal as of right, usually to your state Supreme Court, okay? So... There will be evidence. You will have the opportunity to uh, be heard. You have the opportunity to be represented by counsel. There will be a factual finding. And then that factual finding you get, uh, assuming that it's bad. And I think we have every reason to believe that it will be bad for Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and then you get at least one appeal as of right, usually to your state's Supreme Court, your your state's highest court, to say, okay, uh, uh, are we prepared to to permanently uh, disbar this person from the practice of law, right? Mm -hmm. um, shocker that lawyers build in better protections for themselves than, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we have for, uh, I don't know, children found at the border. But uh, but there you go. Um, and so uh, it, it, the second half of your question, I, I want to make sure I don't lose the thread because it was a really, really good question, was whether this was connected to Michigan. And it isn't, right? This is about an investigation into the various Pennsylvania lawsuits, right? Not the Michigan sanctions. The election challenge in question was actually a lawsuit filed days after the 2020 election in a Pennsylvania federal court on behalf of the Trump campaign. And this is the one where at oral arguments, Giuliani claimed without evidence, we saw this in the 1-6 committee hearings today, uh, that the best description of this situation is it's widespread nationwide voter fraud 
of which this is a part. This is where he advanced the claim that 8,000 dead people had voted in Philadelphia. Uh, and we heard testimony today that not that, that it was zero. It was not even eight, uh, mm-hmm. let alone 8,000. So um, this was just uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, possibly intoxicated, uh, going into court and lying. And mm-hmm. um, he, 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 the, the bar frowns on that. <laughs> yeah, and and that and they they brought up that intoxicated drunk part quite a few times. Um, intoxicated, inebriated. There were <laughs> there was a lot going on there, and that was the night of the election. Um, now the disciplinary filings uh, in this case said that Giuliani quote had cited to the district court as a basis for his fraud allegations several sources that could not, as a categorical matter, prove that <laughs> yeah. the defendants in Pennsylvania in that case, had, quote, committed or facilitated election fraud during the 2020 election. We can't prove that at all. That was the uh, what they had asserted. Uh, and Rudy also lacked evidence in his claims that in the case that barriers erected at Pennsylvania vote counting sites amounted to fraud. Uh, <laughs> and Giuliani, quote, should have known the evidence he provided in this case to claim mass fraud relied upon false or faulty statistics and analysis. Yeah, and they they put evidence in scare quotes in that. That's never a good sign either. Um, So of the 300 affidavits that Giuliani provided in that Pennsylvania case, the D.C. bar charges uh, that they were a unsupported, that they all fall into one of the or or more of these categories, a unsupported. (laughs) That's a lot of them. B unrelated to Trump voters. And and it's shocking the number of affidavits that are just like, well, I saw a truck pull up and a guy had a trash bag and came into the building with a trash bag. So obviously those were Biden ballots. And you're like, what? Anyway, (laughs) C, involved conduct outside of the seven defendant counties, right, that, Mm. that, that they were actually suing with respect to. And D, by their own terms, were isolated incidents that could not have affected the presidential elections results by offsetting the Biden majority of over 80,000 votes. And that and that is yeah, look like we, we know of one in Michigan. I don't I don't know that there are any in Pennsylvania, but we know of one in Michigan. Turns out it was a Trump voter. But like mm. this happens once per election cycle, like some dude will get a will register to vote uh, and then will die and his widow will go cast his vote on his behalf. Right. We'll say, you know, hey, Andrew's dying wish would have been that I came in and cast his vote for Donald Trump. So I did that. And like, is that technically election fraud? Sure. Is it? Pro, is it uniformly pro Biden? Almost not, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. almost all the cases we know about are actually Trump votes. And 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 the, and again, the most important part it falls into this D category of like, you can throw a ton of spaghetti at the wall with respect to like, did this one dead guy vote? Did this one person vote out of their proper precinct? You know, but it doesn't add up to eighty thousand. So. Right. And yeah. and there was one of the election um, experts who testified to that today in the hearing, too. He's like, look, <laughs> at the most, I, I, you know, I think you might get 300, 200, you know, uh, of, of a change in vote. And it's not ever necessarily toward the person you want to go towards. Where there were several recounts that went in favor of Biden, um, <laughs> but never a near enough the amount that would be needed to overturn uh, any of the, the, the key states. Yeah, that was Ben Ginsburg who testified today. A very well-known Republican elections lawyer was uh, one of the folks at the head of the 2000 uh, Bush uh, litigation team, right? Uh, the successful Bush litigation team that 
generally known as a go-to guy in Republican politics when you need to file lawsuits, uh, you know, who sort of surveyed the Kraken landscape but is like, well, you know, there's a reason they went one in 61 and their one victory was letting people sneeze on people, right? Like, mm. it, 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 it was it was pretty powerful stuff. Um, he He's right. Like, you, you might recall, you know, one of the earliest episodes, it was episode like 23 of Opening Arguments, was... Uh, when we tackled the absolutely bogus, idiotic, ridiculous claimed recounts uh, by Jill Stein of the Green Party that we're going to put, you know, sweep Hillary Clinton into office. And so, you know, if you if you doubt if you still got an Uncle Frank listening to this show, which probably you don't. Um, I said this exact same thing six years ago. Right. I said you do not get you know, three tens of thousands of votes across three states by a recount. You get what Ben Ginsburg said. You get a couple of hundred votes. And that is, in fact, what happened in the only state in which the recount went forward, which was Wisconsin in 2016. The result of the recount was Trump gained like 107 votes. So, yep. yeah, you don't, you don't get 80,000. You don't get 30,000. You don't get 10,000 from recounts. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Andrew, in this bar investigation, what, what happens next? Yeah, so this is the the, the, the quasi judicial proceeding. This is the hearing phase in which uh, Giuliani gets to respond to the allegation. I don't know what his response is going to be. I mean, I I didn't write this thing that's in black and white. I don't know. Uh, but but so the charges get put before a hearing committee, which can consider uh, extrinsic evidence as well as testimony in contested proceedings and uh, then, quote, prepares a report and recommendation with proposed findings of fact, conclusions of law and a recommended sanction, which is then filed with the uh, bars, the D.C. Bars Board of Professional Responsibility. And earlier, one more question for you. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, normally if you want to contest this or appeal it or if, if there's any authority, it's usually the state Supreme Court. But D.C. doesn't have one of those. So what happens there? They, they, they do. Their state Supreme Court is called the D.C. Court of Appeals. And yeah, and I know it's weird. Maryland is the same way. It's just one of those like I, you go into New York. It's the same thing. Like your state trial courts are called Supreme Courts. And uh, it's just uh, the, the the highest court is called the uh, Court of Appeals. So gotcha. And go. that's different from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it, it's mm. super when you practice in D.C., as I have for, you know, 25 years, it mm -hmm. it, it could get very confusing. You know, yeah, they're are you weird in... with their attorney general and what they do. And, well, and, and the U.S. And... attorney does the stu other stuff. And it's like, but that's a U.S. attorney. It's it's yeah, it's interesting. And when you it's... say you're in state court in D.C. and D.C. isn't a state, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's uh, it's, it it's a lot of fun. So but. Uh, uh, but yeah, it goes up to uh, highest court of D.C. And um, I think we can look forward to uh, Rudy being disbarred. So I, I'm certainly uh, I've got the uh, the reuniti on ice for that one. So <laughs> and that's cool. He hasn't really practiced since like oh two. Yeah. Um, and his law he's already suspended from practicing. But let's talk a minute about uh, real quick about the, the hearing that we that we saw this morning. I know you and I are going to separately break it down in more yep. detail on opening arguments and the beans. But it, it was important in that, you know, if I was going to sum up this hearing, uh, it seems like there's two different sort of tracks, right? One is, um, you know, the big lie to prove that Trump knew that he lost and that he was lying. But also this seemed like the grift, right? This was him going out and saying, uh, raising money, fundraising, uh, de defrauding donors, I would say, uh, on, on a, a known lie. But then also... 
uh, Zoe Lofgren has told CNN spending that money on himself and his family, like personally <laughs> enriching shocker. himself. Yeah. <laughs> and and Bannon was pulled over on a yacht by the by the post office. The post cops office. And, yeah, cops, and, yeah. <laughs> and arrested uh, for, for that kind of a, a fundraising scheme. And we know Sidney Powell has been under investigation in the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. Her pack for fundraising off the big lie. Since back in September, they, that grand jury has been looking at her stuff with Flynn and that whole group, right? So, yeah. um, but the fact that, that root, so that's sort of what this, these t- today's hearings boiled down uh, to, to for me in that so that they could now introduce their next idea, right? They're like, all right, we got the big lie. We got the big lie. We're putting all that stuff out there. We got our cases. We're losing our cases. Now in comes Eastman, right? With his, with his thing. But the, but I, I found it very, very interesting that there is seemingly evidence that the January 6th committee has that he defrauded mail fraud, wire fraud, defrauded donors, broke a bunch of laws when he created that entity on November 9th, which was basically a slush fund for what he called the election defense fund and then and spent that money on everything but election defense. Yeah, I, 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 I agree that that's kind of the top line takeaway from watching uh, today's hearings. And again, this is we're recording this on Monday. Um, I think it illustrates the very diverse audiences that the January 6th committee is targeting, right? We we got the report from Merrick Garland who said, yeah, the DOJ is watching these hearings, right? So on the one hand, they are making the case to the Department of Justice in public, hey, there are crimes going on. Put a, put a pin in that one. Uh, on the other hand, right, they are trying to interest the American public, right, which includes, like, you and I and our listeners have been tracking this since the very beginning, right? But But lots of Democrats, lots of independents, lots of you know, centristy Republicans have checked out and you you have to kind of loop them all back in. So from a legal perspective, this is what I think today's hearings established if I'm a potential prosecutor. Right. And, and to me, when I if you ask me, what is a victory condition for the January 6th committee look like? Uh, uh, one of them is. An indictment of Donald Trump for 18 U.S.C. 2384 for seditious conspiracy, right? I, but not I think, from the committee. Not from the committee, by the DOJ, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be a formal referral, can just be, as we know, as we heard today from Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, yeah, we're watching these hearings, right? And so what you have to do is you have to get a prosecutor over that hump that says, if I bring this case... I I can bring this case and win. And I don't want to because believe me, there's no shortage of prosecutors who would love to slap handcuffs on Donald Trump. Right. But all of them are also thinking the same thing, which is, man, if I'm known as the as the person who got, you know, who got Trump an acquittal on these charges, then, you know, I. That will be the the biggest possible disaster, right? He will walk around, even though it's not the case. He'll walk around going, "See, a court declared me innocent," and, and even though that's not what courts do, it, it, it <laughs> that's what you have to get a prosecutor over. And we've talked about this a lot. Eighteen USC twenty three eighty four is an intent crime. You can offer as a defense the "I was too stupid to crime" defense, right? And if Donald Trump says, "I believed." firmly, fully, that I won by 20 billion votes 
and Dominion in league with the Illuminati and the reverse vampires sent all the votes to Venezuela so that the ghost of Hugo Chavez could turn them into Joe Biden votes. No matter how fucking stupid that is, if he honestly believes that, it would be very, very hard to meet the exact terms of 2384 and show that somebody wanted to use force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. You would say, yeah, he didn't think he was, he wasn't trying to prevent or hinder the execution of any law of the United States. He was trying to correct a massive fraud, no matter how dumb that fraud was. And so today's efforts, I think, were meant to dispel. Look, you can't go all the way, right? We do not yet have the smoking gun of, you know, an email from Donald Trump uh, to John Eastman that says, yeah, I know it's all bullshit too, but this is all we got left, right? But today what we saw was, at minimum, willful ignorance. We saw Donald Trump surrounded. He had 50 different advisors and 48 of them said, you, sir, have lost the election. Right. It's including over. the it's DHS done. and the attorney general and actual like people and people he appointed, by the way. Um, and Joyce Vance brought up that the idea of willful blindness. Uh, and that you put together a block of the things like you saw today that can defeat that idea that, you know, because at some point, y- some point you're being willfully blind. Yeah. And I thought here the most effective witness we heard from and we and we only saw uh, televised uh, clips from his interview with the January 6th committee uh, was. Uh, well, Bill Stepien, too, but Richard Donahue, right, um, mm-hmm. who was at the yeah. DOJ. He is the guy who, uh, in connection with the Eastman proceedings, you know, said uh, to Trump directly, you know, if you install Jeff Clark as attorney general, I will resign. A hundred people will resign. You will be left with no one left at the DOJ. I'm not working for that asshole. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's Richard Donahue. And today we heard him describing what we've seen in his prior emails of he would go to Donald Trump and, and Trump would say, well, I, I saw that there was a big suitcase full. And he would say, all right, look, here you go. There's proof. No suitcase. And then what would happen? Well, you well, then I I saw that they were running through the votes five different times. He would, then, Yeah, he would actually say, OK, fine. But what about the other? Things? Right. Exactly right. And and, mm-hmm. and when you put all that together and you have somebody presenting an evidentiary case and not just somebody, right? You've got Donahue, you've got Bill Barr, you've got your campaign manager, Bill Stepien. Sissa, DHS, yeah. Krebs, yeah. Yeah, and then you say, I think I'm going to go with the drunk guy instead, right? That That is, again, is it, uh, you know, is it a signed confession? It's not a signed confession, but juries make these kinds of calls all the time. And it's the yeah. kind of call where a jury could look at it and go, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. He he was sur- he had enough information to understand that this was, in the words of Attorney General Bill Barr, utter bullshit. And he decided he was going to only listen to the people who told him what he wanted to hear. That's enough, right? And yeah. that is enough to manifest an intent to to uh, first to obstruct an official proceeding and then to 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 commit seditious conspiracy. So, mm-hmm. um, I I thought I thought that was. Very, very effective from a legal perspective. You could ask for ask for more, right? The the piece we do not have yet is we do not have somebody testify. And and again, hearsay is fine on this, right? Like this is not a, this is not a trial yet. Uh, and even at trial, it would be admissible if we have 
And and I got to believe that we have Bill Barr saying, and then Trump told me X, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what we Meadows haven't heard has it yet. too. Um, that, yeah. So, and, and, and maybe Cassidy Hutchinson might, and that might be why she's the star witness. Uh, but, you know, and of course, very interestingly, you know, uh, when when they brought up in the hearings last Thursday that uh, Cheney said Scott Perry had called the White House to ask for a pardon. And then you mix that with the news that we got that Mark Meadows was incinerating documents in his office fireplace after a meeting with Scott Perry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very interesting what Cassie Hutchinson is going to say. But I'm very interested in the Wednesday hearing, um, which is the hearing that's happening today as you're listening to this to this episode. And that is the one that's going to include the former DOJ officials, Donahue, Rosen, uh, Engel. Um, and, and they're going to be talking about the January 4th meeting mm-hmm. um, where where they you just, what you said, you know, hey, you're going to be presiding over a graveyard if you put that dick bag in charge of the DOJ. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but they did use the word <laughs> graveyard. Got it right. yeah. They did use the word graveyard. Um, but dick bag is what they were thinking. I like to, I like to, you know, tell you what I think was in their mind at the time. Uh, and, and a lot of this is going to be, and I don't know if they're going to bring up fully the Eastman stuff or if that's for another day, but I want to talk, Andrew, a little bit about <laughs> your expectations for that hearing, because that's the one I'm interested in is the meaty department of justice stuff. But also the Eastman, you, you've been gone for a couple of weeks and we've had a lot come out on, on the Eastman front, particularly a new crime fraud exception email, yep. uh, which isn't the right term, but whatever, um, where, and, and the way that I described this, Andrew, and tell me if you agree when I was in the military, we had a, a saying, and that saying was, it's always better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> and what seemed to happen here was that these two law groups branched off. One of them was like, we should go to court and try to see if the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional. And that's Sidney Powell and Louis Gohmert and that whole group. Then, right. And then there's another group. You might with call the that Eastman. the idiot group. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but there's still there's there's another idiot group. <laughs> Uh, of Eastman Rudy types who are like, no, 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 no. We want to go to court on what the state's responsibilities are. We don't want to challenge the Electoral Count Act because if we get an adverse ruling, adverse for them, not us, if we get an adverse ruling that says Pence has to just open and count the votes and can't throw out electors and the Electoral Count Act is constitutional, our whole plan is fucked. Yes. Our whole <laughs> illegal plan is fucked. So let's not go to the courts. Let's not do that because it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Let's just forge ahead with our bullshit thing. And that is the email. That sentiment is what was in the email, that part of the email at least, that has to be released to the January 6th committee under the crime fraud exception, which they have now. And yeah, which they, which they do now have. Yeah. So along well, with 158 other documents, I believe. Yep. So we learned a bunch of things uh, in following the latest uh, Eastman ruling, which, which again came right on the eve of the first January 6th committee hearings. And if you have been listening to us discuss uh, the saga of John Eastman on this show, then y- y- you were less surprised by what you heard laid out in that kind of opening statement by Liz Cheney, because we were able to piece that together from the documents the January 6th committee had 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 released. We learned interesting things that have still not yet been put together by the committee. So I want to share some of those with you right now. Um, and so this is 
part of the court's ruling. So, so now remember the court has looked at all of these documents in camera, right? They have released a whole bunch, right? 159, uh, to the January 6th committee, but, but the court's seen everything and, and has, I think, uh, a very good picture of exactly what happened. Here's what the judge said. This is Judge Carter of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of Columbia. So first they say, don't forget, in March, we found that uh, John Eastman and Donald Trump more likely than not used their legal relationship to commit crimes, <laughs> in particular, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding. 18 U.S.C. 371, 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. Okay. Now. What about before January 4th? Eastman says, well, you know, you only found that we were criming, you know, up a couple of days before the 1-6. Like, you know, the stuff we did in December, I'm sure was fine. Here's what the court says. The previously disclosed documents indicate that Dr. Eastman and President Trump's plan to disrupt the joint session on 1-6. That's what happened. Was fully formed and actionable as early as December 7th, 2020. That's news. Okay. Yeah. And that will be news to most people when that comes out at the January 6th committee hearing when you're listening to this show, right? Like this, I think you're going to see this case put together on Wednesday. We'll see if I'm right. On that day, Dr. Eastman forwarded a memo. This is the Ches the Cheeseboro memo, right? Explaining why January 6th was the hard deadline that was critical to the result of this election for the Trump campaign. A week later on December 13th, President Trump's personal attorney, Pat Cipollone, received a more robust analysis of January 6th significance, which was potentially, quote, the first time members of President Trump's team transformed a legal interpretation of the Electoral Count Act into a day-by-day -day plan of action. The current set of documents also confirm that the plan was established well before January 6th. In an email on December 22nd, an attorney with the Trump legal team referred to the January 6th strategy as a known plan to eight other people. And again, keeping in mind that this ruling came out before the, the very first opening statement by the uh, January 6th committee. That's a bombshell, right? Like mm -hmm. this is this is about John Eastman's documents. And prior to to reading that sentence, I, I, we knew of Eastman. We knew in connection with the reply brief, we we heard about uh, Ken Cheeseboro, but but eight other people, right, sitting there plotting. This is classic conspiracy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. This is not just like. You know, where are we on the line from? I'm asking my attorney, hey, you know, if I stage a spontaneous demonstration outside Brett Kavanaugh's, right? Like that, that, that kind of stuff, right? You could say, okay, well, did you go too far? Did it? But, but when you have eight different people in a room. Yeah. yeah. And you're referring to the January 6th strategy <laughs> because as the eight other people already know about it. That's what this sentence is saying. In reference to the January 6th strategy as a known plan. Yep. Like, and, this isn't, a, hey, I'm going to introduce you to this January 6th strategy. This is, hey, remember that January 6th strategy that eight of us have been taught, nine of us have been talking about for a while? This is in reference to that. Yep. And as a Christmas present, two days later, December 24th, this is your point. 
Eastman wrote in an email, because God, does he write the dumbest emails, that <laughs> the worst case for the plan would be receiving a court decision that, and this is the words of, of, of Judge Carter, constrained Vice President Pence's authority to reject electors. Dr. Eastman and President Trump's plan to stop the count was not only established by early December, it was the ultimate goal that the legal team was working to protect from that point forward. That's a really crucial sentence, right? That is what you said earlier. No, no, no. We can't go to the court on this because we're, we will lose and then we will have an adverse decision and then we can't even pretend anymore, right? Yes, protect the plan. And yep. and and part of me wonders if that's why Sidney Powell wasn't banished at the end of November uh, from the legal yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. She very filed. Well she she helped Gomer file the lawsuit against Pence. They went that way and they were like, no, no, we can't. Um, and and that's also, you know, people were involved in that lawsuit that got emails from Ginny Thomas. I mean, it's a mess. This whole thing is a fucking mess. Um, but it was very well parsed uh, by by Judge Carter, who's just excellent, just super succinct, excellent writer. I love the way that Judge Carter writes. Uh, these rulings because it's very logical. It follows a path. It makes sense. So um, for the legal findings, um, <laughs> it, it says here, for the reasons explained above, the court finds 440 documents are privileged. The court orders Dr. Eastman to disclose the other 159 documents to the committee by 2 p.m. Pacific on Wednesday, June 8th. <laughs> Um, and keep that, in mind, this ruling came out Tuesday, June 7th. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you have half a day. So what were these docs? Um, let's break that down. Um, I'll, I'll start here, Andrew. Yeah. Of, of those 159, 148 were non-privileged because they weren't seeking legitimate litigation strategy. They didn't fall into that work product document, right? Or doctrine, right? So, you know, this was coordinating with idiots to meet at the Denny's parking lot. Uh, and declare yourself an imaginary Trump elector. That's right. what those emails were about. And uh, plenty more, 360, were coordinating doomed Kraken lawsuits. Um, <laughs> and I'd love to see his advice, but that's actually legitimate attorney-client privilege. And I asked you about that. I was like, can you cite the Kraken bullshit lawsuits if you know the Kraken bullshit lawsuits were filed uh, egregiously, um, frivolously, capriciously, um, does that count? It does count. That's actually attorney-client privilege. J6 did not have uh, a reason to know that. Neither did we. And the court didn't fault them for asking for it. They erred on the side of privilege. So stick a pin in that. Yeah. And, and that's all exactly right. Um, and, and look, I want my clients ask me all the time, hey, you know, I, I, for example, I, I get this. I do once a week from my restaurant and bar owner clients that are like, hey, I want to sue this guy who posted a bad Yelp review. And I have to write back and go, if you were to sue them, you would, you know, lose for eight different reasons in court. This would be a very, very stupid lawsuit, right? So telling somebody your evaluation as a lawyer of their stupid lawsuit is legitimate attorney-client privilege. And the court went out of its way to say, all right, anything that seems like it came close to a real lawsuit, we're going we're gonna to give it to you, okay? But <laughs> as you point out, 148 were, were the uh, – had to do with – secretly declaring yourself an elector without going to the courts, which is the definition of not attorney client work product, <laughs> yeah, right? Because right. you're not going to you're not going to court. Um and then there were eleven documents that were privileged, but the court released under the crime fraud exception. And um we we know the exact Bates numbers of this. We we have some reason to think that uh, folks connected to the committee uh 
you know, listen, listen to the show. So I, I'm going to announce what those numbers are, which you look for them when you see them in public. Um, the first one, and, and this is uh, redacting most of a, a document number 51291. Okay. This is from a group of five different emails. And the court says, for these five documents, consider how filing certain election lawsuits might affect the January 6th plan. Now, we've talked about that. That is right on the line. That is, yeah, if you file and lose these, then, you know, we can't even pretend anymore. In these emails, Dr. Eastman and his colleagues discuss how to frame their legal filings in light of what they considered a near zero chance of success in the D.C. courts. Attorneys reference January 6th not as the day to enact the plan, but as a deadline to bring timely and effective lawsuit. As the court, as the court noted in its prior order, Pursuing legal recourse itself did not advance any crimes. Accordingly, those four emails, as close as they are to the line, and I would argue the other way, mm. did not further the January 6th plan, so they got held back. But the 5th, <laughs> December 22nd, 2020, an attorney, and this is, again, I'm quoting from the decision, goes beyond strategizing litigation outcomes. This email considers whether to bring a case that would decide the interpretation of the Electoral Count Act and potentially risk a court finding that the act binds Vice President Pence. Because the attorney concluded that a negative court ruling would, quote, tank the January 6th strategy, he encouraged the legal team to avoid the courts. This email cemented the direction of the January 6th plan. The Trump legal team chose not to seek re recourse in court. Instead, they forged ahead with a political campaign to disrupt the electoral count. Lawyers are free not to bring cases, but they are not free to evade judicial review to overturn a Democratic election. So that is document 51291. If you said, I only get to see one Eastman doc out of all this, that's the one I would want to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 100%. Uh, and then real quick before you head out of here, I just want to mention those three meetings that were mentioned <laughs> in this filing based on agendas in, in some of these emails um, and and some really interesting things in here. Five of those documents um, include the agenda for a meeting on December 9th, 2020. Yep. That agenda included a section entitled Ground Game Following the Election, during which a sitting member of Congress discussed a plan to challenge the electors in the House of Representatives. Hmm. Uh, and one document contained uh, the agenda for a meeting the next week, December 16th. Um, this meeting had a section called Ground Game, similarly. And in this segment, an elector for Trump analyzed the constitutional implications of the Electoral College meeting and what comes next. Uh, and the select committee had substantial interest in these three meetings. There was one other one. Yeah, the, the other one was on December 8th, right? So December mm -hmm. 8th, December 9th. December 16th, that led to 10 more documents of that you've described, right? Mm -hmm. That are, that have been produced to the one six committee uh, from John Eastman's files that are not protected uh, because of the crime fraud exception, because they are evidence of collusion between John Eastman and the other folks on these emails and the president of conspiring to obstruct an official government proceeding. Um, that's really significant. And I was really glad to hear the one six committee uh, specifically call out Judge Carter. Zoe Lofgren did that, I think, a, a couple of times today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and 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 to say, you know, as we said at the time, right, which was um, if if a judge, I get that criminals are different, but like a judge is determined by a preponderance of the evidence more likely than not. 
that Donald Trump and John Eastman committed crimes. If that's the case, um, it's trivially easy to, to, to get an indictment right now. Like that's, that's higher than the standard that you need to convince a grand jury to indict. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not the process, you know, you wouldn't just take the ruling and stick it in front of a grand jury. But, um, but, but, you know, no, I, I kind of have a little, I kind of have a little bit of a feeling that, you know, the, the, the J6 committee is going to hand over all their transcripts to Department of Justice in September. I don't think we're going to see any moves from the Department of Justice until they get those transcripts and not because they need them. Uh, but because they're just going to add on to the mountains of evidence that they that they already uh, probably have. Uh, and it's always better to have those uh, depositions. I think one thing that the J6 committee did really well that sort of t- got taken off the plate of the Department of Justice was to see who was going to be an asshole and who was going <laughs> who was going to cooperate. They didn't have to go through any of that shit and all the court and all the bullshit. You know, they got to see. Who was going to be like, fuck you, I'm, I'm not coming in and talking. And who was going to come in and talk. And then they're going to also get those talks. I think that that's, I think that's great. Yeah, I, th- I, think that's, I, I think that's right. I think it's also a, a good point that, you know, <laughs> when, when Trump was in power, you could identify, right? Bill, Bill Barr cut off the Mueller report at its knees by three weeks beforehand lying about it omitting the word not from his quote summary. Uh, it got Robert Mueller mad enough to write a series of letters, but not mad enough to come out and say, um, the attorney general is lying about what my report says. And, and that absolutely, I mean, you know, we saw what happened with respect to that. Mm-hmm. They identified the thing that couldn't happen. And then they got everybody to line up in lockstep against it. And, and here we have almost the exact opposite, right? We have no messaging in advance. And we have, yeah, you know, did did Mark Meadows start to cooperate and then turn asshole? Yeah, sure. But like, it doesn't matter. You have Bill, Bill Barr ranting on camera for, uh, oh, gosh, like I would, uh, you know, that did, I, if, if you could have, you know, any film in history, uh, I would love to have the rest of Bill Barr's testimony there. So, uh, yeah. So important thing. The last part is uh, of those 148 non-privileged docs. There's lots of good stuff in there too, and we can talk about that in a in a future uh, episode. Um, keep, keep and I, and I want to talk. Watching. I want to talk about it in a future episode because I think a lot of it's going to come out in 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 the hearings between now and next week's episode. So we're going to do that. We're going to uh, see what comes out. If anything's missing, we will fill in the gaps from what we know from the Eastman emails uh, on Absolutely. the next cleanup on L45. Andrew, I am so glad you're feeling better, my friend. Uh, continue. Uh, I know that you need to get some rest right now. We're all sending you <laughs> healing vibes. Uh, and um, any any final thoughts before we get out of here today? I it just this has been everything that uh, I could have hoped for. And uh, I love watching the January 6th committee do its job. Yes, all the great minds that I've talked to in the past week or so are like, this is good. My, I think what I said is that the, these hearings are fit for history. Yeah. And uh, I think that history will bear them out. They're, they actually, they're kind of like like creeper weed in that way. You know, like remember when you get like some creep nugs and you like smoke it and then you're fine until like maybe two hours later it starts to set in. That's what these hearings are like. Like as you get further away from the hearing, it starts to sink in everything that came out. I think... <laughs> I think that's going to be happening for decades. I really do. <laughs> I, I I think you're right. I'm going to have to defer to you on the creeper weed analogy, but uh, I, I didn't. Will, I never. I will sign up. No, no. I you know precious I just little heard. cinnamon bun. But yeah, I just heard from my friends. All right, we'll talk to you all next week. Uh, I've been Allison Gill. I've been AG. I'm Andrew Torres, and this is Clean Up on All Forty Five.
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.